0: Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Skipping down to verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The king of Egypt called in the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife uh, comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because uh, the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your holy word that speaks to every area of our individual lives, but every area of human culture and uh, important text for us to reflect on this morning. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear the words that you would say to us, and be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So today we are looking at a passage that is horrifying. First of all, it's a story about the killing of... uh, population of babies it's also a passage that's fascinating Uh, it's a passage that begins the book of Exodus the opening chapter of Exodus and it tells the story of uh, a genocide that happened in ancient uh, ancient Egypt around the time that Moses was born uh, where the the king of Egypt had ordered that the killing of all male Hebrew babies that every male Hebrew baby would be killed And uh, it's tragic, but then there are these two kind of unsuspected midwives who uh, save all these babies, and they rescue all these babies, and they're these heroes of this story. And there's so much to say about this passage, but I'll begin by saying that this is a passage about race. And you'll notice that in verse 15. Look at what it says in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, That's the first time the word Hebrews shows up in the book of Exodus. And we know from other languages like Akkadian, ancient ancient Near East languages like Akkadian and Egyptian, that the word Hebrew means a foreigner, someone who's an alien in a foreign land and who has been made a slave. And I'll tell you, for us, you know, living in our culture, those two words of race and slave are words that are charged for us in our culture. And I'm sure that many of you have... Uh, lots of opinions about the questions surrounding race in, in our culture. Probably differing opinions in our, in our church. But one thing that we should be clear about is that race and racism are two of the most prominent topics in the Bible. It's two, two of the most. If, if you go and read through the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament... The Book of Romans, the Book of Galatians, the Book of Ephesians, three of the most important books in the whole Bible. The primary pastoral burden in those in those letters is about racism in the church. And because it says that God has brought all kinds of races into his church, in particular with Jews and Gentiles that were brought into one church family and they have to worship together. And what Paul says in Ephesians is actually what Jesus did when he died on the cross is that there are these walls of hostility that are dividing all the ethnic groups of the world, particularly the Jews and the Gentiles. And Jesus came to tear down the walls of hostility that divide us. That is one of the things that God is doing in the gospel is racial reconciliation. And so racial justice and racial reconciliation must be important burdens for every Christian. Important burdens, and uh, as most of you know, racism is a very complex issue. And so, this morning, I there's no way I'm going to be able to cover everything that we should say as Christians about racism. But I want to just highlight four important principles from this text that should guide our thinking as Christians about race in our culture. And this is what those four principles are: that racial justice is spiritual. It's a spiritual matter. It's a really important. Racial justice is relational. Racial justice is systemic. And lastly, racial justice is found only in Jesus. Four things. Racial justice is spiritual, relational, systemic, and only found in Jesus. Okay, so four points this morning on an important topic. So first is this. Racial justice is a spiritual matter. And what I mean by that is that racism comes from fearing man, fearing people that are different than us. And racial justice comes from fearing God. And actually the first thing that you see in this passage is that the reason the Egyptians enslaved and oppressed the Hebrews, the Israelites, was because of fear. Look at what it says in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And then the next verse actually says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And so the Egyptians saw this growing group of people who dressed differently than them, spoke a different language than them, worshipped a different God than them, who were different foreigners, and the result was fear. And it was fear of the, that they were strange, that they were alien, that caused them to enslave them. Contrast that with the two midwives. What does it say about the two midwives? Verse fifteen. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Puah, "When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, see that uh, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live." But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. It's because the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh that caused them to be defenders of justice. To stand for these children and stand with these women. It was from fearing God. And so what that tells us is that you know, racial justice comes from fearing man. Racial justice comes from fearing God. It means it's a deeply spiritual matter. It's about our relationships to God and our spiritual lives. And I'll tell you a reason why this matters to us as a church. We're, we're a Presbyterian church. And many of you may not know this. Our heritage is really in southern Presbyterianism. Our, our denomination is largely a southern denomination. And uh, we as a denomination, have a historic connection both to slavery and to segregation. And last summer, our General Assembly of our whole denomination uh, passed an overture confessing and repenting corporately of our historical complicities in uh, in racism. And I just want to read to you, I'm going to read you the opening paragraph of that overture. This is what it says. Therefore, be it resolved that the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era, and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshippers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership in the presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and encourages interracial marriage, the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to its neighbor. This is a statement of our denomination. This is actually, and some of this is recent history. This is not civil, civil, or not the uh, civil war era. Um, and so, you know, a question that raises: How could Christians act that way? Say that a black person could not be a member of their church, or a black person could not be an elder or a pastor in their church? Or, you know, it was clearly unbiblical. How, how could Christians ever start to think like that? Well, I, I was reading this week about some of the, historic, uh, the theological roots of racism in our tradition. And one prominent Presbyterian theologian, Robert Louis Dabney, who was not only, not only endorsed race-based slavery, but Dabney has, had encouraged that all black women would migrate north. And this is what the historian said about Dabney's views is this was out of fear that Reconstruction after the Civil War allowed blacks the capacity to produce innumerable offspring that would eventually destroy the racial makeup of the South. See, I don't, he said he didn't want black people having babies because they were going to expand, they were going to grow, and they are going to take over our culture out of fear. That's exactly what the king of Egypt said 3,000 years ago. It's, almost, it's exact logic and it is a fear of people who are culturally, racially different. But the midwives in this passage, interestingly, it says they feared God. And if you're here and you'd say, you know, I fearing God, isn't that kind of an archaic idea that God gets angry? And, you know, the big angry God in the sky, didn't they do that, you know, thousands of years ago? And now we're modern people. We've kind of grown out of the angry God. Well, let me, uh, let me read to you. A quote, this is from a sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. gave called Tough Mind, Tender Heart. This is what he says. At times, we need to know that the Lord is a God of justice. When slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like the grass and leave them withering like the green herb. When our most tireless efforts fail to stop the surging sweep of oppression, we need to know that in this universe is a God whose matchless strength is a fit contrast to the sordid weakness of man. And so what Martin Luther King Jr. said is that Believing in the fear of God, fearing God, is an essential aspect of uh, essential to the fight against racial injustice. That we must know the fearful, awful power of and anger of God, the God of justice, and that's why, of course, the Civil Rights Movement was, was in many ways a spiritual revival. It was a spiritual revival. It was a return to the Lord so what that tells us is that uh, racial justice, first of all, is a spiritual matter. It is something that God is doing in the church and through his people and through the gospel, okay? Second insight, racial justice is relational. And, you know, one of the best parts about this passage is that, you know, it talks about the king of Egypt. And we're not sure which... Pharaoh this was that this is talking about. You know, people make guesses about what Pharaoh from history this was. We don't even know his name. He's the wealthiest, um, most powerful man in the world at this time, and we don't even know who he is. He's been forgotten. And yet, you read this in verse 15. What does it say? Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua... (laughs) We know the names of these two midwives who, you know, nobody in this culture, and God says they will be remembered. Here we are over 3,000 years later talking about them. He has memorialized them in his word because he treasures their work. And so now they're far more famous than the pharaoh ever was. And, uh, And I think this is an important element of the story because these midwives were actually not on a crusade to end racism against Israelites. They were doing their jobs. And they feared God. And they were put in a position to challenge the injustice of their society. They did it. And um, the first place for us to think about racism in our own lives, or our own culture, is in the relationships that God brings to us in our everyday life. I'm I'm talking about in our work. That's where you're going to interact with real people who are different than you. Ethnically differently than you, religiously differently than you, generationally differently than you, socioeconomically differently than you, you're going to interact with all kinds of people in in your workplace, in your hobbies, in sports, in uh, um, in your neighborhoods. And you know, an interesting example of this principle is uh, Daryl Davis, who's a, a blues piano player, and some of you probably seen him recently in the news. There's a documentary done about him called uh, Accidental Courtesy. And he tells a story about how he was playing in a nightclub. He's playing piano in a nightclub. And this he's black guy, and white, this white guy comes up to him and says, hey, you know, I didn't know that black people knew how to play this kind of music like you did. Way to go. And he was like, well, you don't know that like rock and roll has its roots in like black blues music? Of course we know how to play this kind of music. And so they sat down, they had this discussion about about, uh, about music, and the guy says, well, you know, I've actually never sat down and had a drink with a black person before. And so Daryl Davis says, well, why is that? And so the guy kind of looks around, he's like, well, I'm a member of the KKK. And, you know, Daryl Davis was kind of shocked, but but they actually had a friendly conversation about, uh, um, about music, and that conversation spurred Daryl, Daryl Davis to say, you know, I'm going to meet some more KKK people. And so he would seek out members of the KKK and he would sit down them and say how, and he'd say to them how can you hate me if you don't even know me? So I want to sit, we're going to have a drink, we're going to uh, have a meal together and I want to get to know you. He has now 200 former members of the KKK who have left the KKK because he befriended them. Actually, he's got a whole closet of robes that he keeps <laughs> of clan leaders who gave him their robes, and he keeps them, and it's like he's, you know, shows them. And, you know, the beginning was music. Music was the connection. It was in, it's in our gifts, it's in our hobbies that is a gateway to build relationships. Now, someone might hear that, and you say, okay, racial justice is about relationships. But isn't it a larger scale thing than that as well, isn't you know? Isn't it a society-wide kind of thing that's bigger than just like personal relationships? You know, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, wasn't he bringing about a systemic change that he was protesting? Shouldn't we be protesting you know, a certain way that a society functions? And before I say yes to that, I first want to say that there's a warning for us because whenever. Oppressed people. This is. I shouldn't say whenever, but often throughout history, when oppressed people get vindication for their oppression, they often become oppressors. And actually, I was just talking to Ernie, uh, our piano player, but uh, between services, and Ernie is Chinese. He grew up in Malaysia, and he was. He said, I've seen all kinds of ways that people that were deeply discriminated against actually became perpetrators of racism themselves and you know we're and many people are both simultaneously victims of racism and perpetrators of it and their the fact that they've been mistreated actually justifies their mistreatment of others and so when we have a moral outrage about something like racism we have to guard our own hearts that we are ourselves not falling into sin this is what Galatians 6 1 says it says brother If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. When we are correcting others, there's a possibility for us to be tempted to sin against them and to mistreat them and to hurt them. Okay? And that's why Martin Luther King was so effective, his emphasis on love changing the world, loving your enemies, peaceful, nonviolent uh, violent protest. And there is a gentleness, you know, the tender heart that he was talking about in his sermon. But the question is, is racial justice something that must happen on a larger scale than simply love in interpersonal relationships? I think this text says yes. Okay, and this is the third principle. So first, racial justice is a spiritual matter, it's a relational matter. Third, racial justice, is a systemic matter and by systemic I mean that racism is not an isolated sin that's simply committed by one individual against another but it is a part of the way a whole society functions and so you know clearly in this passage what aspects of society are affected here well first of all the king has made an order for the babies to be killed so this is this is a political aspect to it it affects the midwives who are in the medical field, right? In the healthcare field. It affects the healthcare field. And then also, the the Hebrews are made slaves, so it has an economic impact. And so, it's not just about individuals mistreating each other, but racism of this passage is woven into every part of the society. And you know, over the past few weeks, I've been uh, listening to a book by Brian Stevenson called. Just Mercy. It's a really well written book. Uh, Brian Stevenson uh, is a lawyer who works with minority men who are on death row pro- predominantly in the south. And he actually is an interesting guy. He was, he was just doing his calling, doing his work. He was in law school and he got an internship where he ended up, part of his internship is he had to go meet with a guy who was on death row and just tell the guy your, uh, set, you know, your uh, the execution date has been delayed for a year. That's all he had to do. And then he went in and he ends up having a three-hour conversation with this man. And it turns out this man has been immensely uh, uh, you know, uh, um, mistreated in that putting on death row that, you know, he has like 30 witnesses to where he was during the time of the murder. He's clearly innocent and he's now awaiting a death sentence that he had for a murder he had nothing to do with. And, um, and so he's just doing his work and all of a sudden he finds out that he's working with these men who are on, on death row. And he has some chilling stories about people who had, have even in recent years been sentenced to death who are clearly innocent. And um, but he also tells a personal story about when uh, he had first moved to Atlanta. And you know he's a, a young lawyer who's taking on these cases, and he he's working late into the night. And so he comes to a new apartment that he just moved into. He's in a new neighborhood, and he pulls over at eleven o'clock at night, and he's listening to some music. And just finishing the song before he's going to go in his house, and all of a sudden a spotlight is put on him while he's waiting in the car, and it was a, it was actually not just a regular police car; it was like a SWAT team car. And they put on the radio, "Get out of the car and put your hands on the car." And these two police officers come out with their guns drawn on him, and he's just sitting there, and and they pin him up against the uh, against his his car. And all the neighbors come out at 11 o'clock at night, and they're saying, what's going on? And it turns out there had been some break-ins in uh, in this neighborhood. And all these brand-new neighbors, he didn't even know them. This is the first interaction he's having with them, is that he's a Harvard Law School lawyer who's being pinned against a a car for something he had nothing to do with, simply because he's black. Now, I'll I'll tell you, in my uh, adolescence, I was picked up for shoplifting twice. I uh, wrecked a car when I was drunk, joyriding did all kinds of damage. I was put in the back of a police car when I was drunk for fighting and being belligerent with police officers. I have nothing on my record. If I was a young black man, would you think that would be true? There is a, uh, that's a part of the system. I don't know what it's like for the thing that he experienced I have not experienced as a white man growing up in America. And so, um, some of you may be hearing you say, you know, I I know the tendency, if you're a more conservative kind of person, is to say, have some questions, how extensive is systemic racial injustice? And I'll tell you, one of the ironies of this passage is this is a classic passage on race, which we generally think of as like a liberal left-leaning issue. What is this? Also, a classic passage about abortion. This is about the killing of babies, and uh, and we see here that one of the main ways that minorities are systematically oppressed is through the killing of their children, so that they don't grow as a people. In our society right now, at least forty percent of African American babies are aborted. And actually, Planned Parenthood has, has that in its founding. Margaret Sanger had, uh, encouraged abortion to rid our society of defects, delinquents, and dependents, largely referring to poor and minority groups. And so if you're a conservative person and you're against abortion, then that means you believe that racism is systemic, at least through abortion, and it's systemic in other ways besides abortion. That is something that is in the scriptures now, this raises a uh, problem for us because, you know, point two, racial justice is relational. Many of us can say, okay, I could do that. I could think of, find someone who's different than me that I work with and build a relationship with them, but systemic injustice, I don't even know what to do about that. I mean, it's so massive. Our society is 350 million people. And I'm not sure what we can do about it. And if that's the way you feel, I think one thing the Bible tells us is that you should feel that way. And this leads to the fourth point, fourth principle, is that racial injustice is found only in Jesus. You're right. It's not something we can do. It is not something we can heal. It is something God alone can heal and that he is healing through Christ as I mentioned, racial reconciliation is a major target of the gospel's work uh, in the earth. And the global Christian church is immensely multi-ethnic this day. I mean, there's people in every, every ethnicity, every color, every language that worship Jesus. So if we're bad at being friends with people that are different than us, Jesus isn't bad at it. He has made all kinds of friends everywhere. And so our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in Christ in this matter. And I'll show you. This is in this text in a really interesting way. Look at what it says in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, when you read that and uh, and you say, oh, the midwives obeyed God, and he gave the midwives families. But that word them right there that you see is masculine. It's not talking about women. Someone else got families because the midwives feared God. And it's actually all the people of Israel. And so we come to a text like this and we say, where do I find, who am I in this? Who am I supposed to identify with in this passage? So far we've been saying we should identify with the midwives. They feared God, we should fear God. They, you know, and they were courageous, and they built. You know, in their work, they 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 worked for justice, and they stood against the system. And we say we should we should, and in many ways, that's true. We should be like these midwives. They are a model to us. But here we see that the midwives feared God, and the people benefited because of their faithfulness. Who we are in this passage are those people, and Jesus is the midwife. He's the one who feared God. He's the one who stood against power and, and trusted God in the, in the face of oppression. And we get to share in the benefits of his faithfulness. He gives to us because of his faithfulness, because not because of what we're doing, but because of what he's done. Now, let me tell you why this is important, that Jesus is the hero, Jesus is the Savior, and we aren't. Because, you know, if, we, you know, if I say, oh, you know, you're right, racism is a problem, and I'm going to go fix it. And, you know, I'm an educated, uh, middle-class, white guy, and I'm going to go help the minorities of our culture. Is that helping, racism? (laughs) Isn't there a lot of arrogance in that, that I have all the answers? They're the broken ones, and I'm going to come fix them? It actually uh, creates more of a sense of a superiority. And what the gospel tells us to do is to realize that we are all broken, we are all poor, we are poor in different ways. Some of us are poor. Some of you are poor in community. And there are there are poor, economically poor people who have way more community than we have. They know how to get together and have meals together and hang out at the beach together. We don't even know how to do that. And there are other people that are poor in their health and in their bodies. There are other people that are, that are poor in their character. We all have a poverty that we bring to Jesus, and we need him to heal us. And I'll tell you, this passage, actually probably the most important interpretation of it is we could say, oh yeah, the midwives point us to Jesus. But the rest of the Bible actually doesn't say it's the midwives who point us to Jesus. Some of you may know how this text comes up again later in the Bible. When you get to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, this whole scene happens again. Herod is the king in Palestine, and he hears that the king of the Jews is born, and what does he start doing? Killing babies. And it turns out that Jesus comes not identifying with the midwives. He comes identifying with those families that are being hunted. And he himself became one of those oppressed, hunted families. And he had to run away. And he he lived a life that was homeless and he became poor. And he he came and dwelt with the poor and became one of us. That is how he is transforming the world. That is the picture for us, that he came and was one with us. And so the Bible calls us to see ourselves as the poor, the alien, the ignorant, the broken, who are all coming together in need to be healed by Jesus. We all need to be healed by Jesus. And so that's the picture. Those are principles us for as a church. Racial justice is a spiritual matter. It's about relationships. It's this, we need to name that it's a systemic issue matter. I know there's all kinds of debate of how that manifests itself. But lastly, our hope is ultimately in Jesus and we put our trust in Him. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in Heaven, we are grieved that Humanity, those who bear your image, are fractured from each other. We confess we do not know how to love one another and to love those who are different than us. We are driven far more by a fear of man than by a fear of God. Uh, We pray that uh, you would train us in the truth of the gospel. And that we would see people that are uh, racially different, but from different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds and status, uh, people that are different in personality, um, all coming together as a unified family in Jesus. We long to see your kingdom come here on earth um, and your will to be done here on earth as it is done In heaven, we ask in Jesus' name.